216 million people have viewed that. <laughs> Just those 13 seconds of hilarity there. Uh, band was on fire this morning. You guys were singing so good, too. So over the last month or so, as I've been watching these uh, funny viral videos that we've been showing, I thought this morning that uh, I would go a little bit old school on you. I mean, how did we used, how, how did things used to go viral, uh, you, you know, back in the day, back in, in, in old school days? Because uh, it isn't just with the uh, advent of the internet, um, you know, after Al Gore invented it, that... Um, <laughs> that things started to go viral, uh, there have been lots of moments in, in our history, and, and some of those um, very serious moments, uh, crucible moments in, in the life of our country. And I wanted to show you um, a couple of pictures that a, a couple of generations ago, um, when, when these pictures um, were taken, and then they were... Um, published in newspapers. Newspapers are those things that, um, <laughs> that you can purchase at the store. I want to show a couple of these pictures real quick. Those of you that are old enough will remember some of these pictures. And the events that brought these about in Birmingham, Alabama, when uh, Bull Connor and the state police began to turn uh, the water cannons on just young uh, Teenage African-Americans. Uh, and then th there's another one in Selma, Alabama, which uh, just celebrated the 50th anniversary uh, of the, the march uh, from Selma uh, to Montgomery. Uh, and then finally this one. And on May 3rd, 1963, Bill Hudson took this photograph that went viral, old school style. The photo, of course, is of a teenage boy, uh, natally dressed, very nice looking, and again, Bull Connor and the state police had turned the police dogs on this young man. Even to this day, this, this picture does not lose its power to shock us. It was sent over the wires, and the next day, the New York Times published it on the front page of their Saturday publication. And the day after that, hundreds of newspapers around the country published this paper. President Kennedy saw the photo and was appalled. The photo was discussed in, on the floor of Congress, in classrooms, and in workplaces around the country over the next week. And just a year later, Congress passed the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964. It's been said that the Civil Rights Act was written in Birmingham, Alabama. So something can, can go viral, even though it's limited uh, in this case, in this era, by the lack of technology. Opposition in this case, and in the scripture that we're going to take a look at in Acts 4 today, where we're at uh, in our series on viral, uh, opposition crystallizes our position. We're going to see that difficulties 
can deepen our determination. And conflict forces us to clarify who we are and where we stand as a people and as a church. And this is exactly what happens to Peter and John in the fourth chapter of Acts. I want to take you there. Uh, and in your worship folder this morning, there's some notes if you'd like to follow along and fill in the blanks. Um, it's what I like to do. And, uh, but I want to read the first six uh, verses of Acts chapter 4, and they'll be up on the screen too. But if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Listen to this. Now, as Mark was talking about last week, um, Peter and John had, in the name of Jesus, healed a lame man that was sitting by the beautiful gate. And after that, they, uh, they stand and proclaim uh, how, that that, how that was done, and they, they, Peter preaches this powerful sermon. You, you would think that the people of that region would be rejoicing. This man who had been lame for over 40 years was suddenly walking among them. But not everyone rejoiced in that act, as we're going to see. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. Listen to this. So the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. Sorry, women and children that are here. You count now. We count you now. Back then they didn't count you. Verse 5, the next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. Luke wants to make it clear just who is opposing Peter and John. These are the heavyweights of the day, the priest, the religious leaders, the Sadducees who were kind of the elite class. And then he mentions several names, John and Alexander, but also Annas and Caiaphas. Now, I don't know if any of those names sound familiar to you. Perhaps they do not. But if you know your Bible, Annas and Caiaphas were two of the officials that were at the trial of Jesus. In fact, they were two of the persons that sent Jesus to his crucifixion. So these are the heavyweights. In fact, these are the folks that sent Peter and John and the rest of the disciples running for their lives just 60 days before this. <laughs> but now suddenly, as we're going to see, now suddenly there, there is a change. There's a difference. <laughs> yeah, we remember how Peter and John and the rest of the disciples, how when Jesus, their leader, 
the master, the one they called Lord and, and the Christ, the Messiah. We, we know what happened just 60 days before. And we're at this moment and we're thinking, how are they going to react now? You know, have you ever had moments in your life that you just feel small? You know, and oftentimes as, as a church, there's times when we can just, you know, feel small, right? I mean, intellectually sometimes. I mean, after we walk out of this room, sometimes, you know, we see the debate that's going on about the infallibility of the Bible or the existence of God. The debates are raging on the campuses of Harvard and, and Stanford and Princeton and ASU, <laughs> I suppose. U of A, sometimes we can feel small intellectually, can't we, as we leave this way. Sometimes we can feel small morally as we, you know, seek to proclaim uh, the truth of Scripture. Sometimes we can feel small religiously as we live in a pluralistic society that sees lots of paths to God. Just, just try to proclaim, as Peter and John will in just a little bit, that that maybe Jesus is the only way to have a relationship both now and eternally with God. Sometimes we can feel small, can't we? So, so how do we, like Peter and John, how do we react? How do we respond when we come upon this opposition? The title of this message this morning that we, we gave it a couple months ago as a staff is hacked. When, when we feel like we've been hacked, our account's been hacked, um, how do we respond? Well, first of all, I think as we read this passage, we should expect a reaction. Our, our lives should, um, should bring a response from people, should, should bring a, a reaction from people. When Peter and John, verse 1, were speaking to the people, they were confronted. One translation says, that the religious leaders, this powerful group of people that came upon them, uh, they rushed them. They bum-rushed them. They came upon them. You know, they didn't just mosey up to Peter and John and say, hey, we'd like to set an appointment with you. Would the second Thursday of next month work so we can kind of discuss some of the things that you were preaching about after you healed the lame man by the beautiful gate? No. They seized them. They ambushed Peter and John. And without a trial, they immediately threw them in jail, incarcerated them. There. That'll shut them up. <laughs> Let them spend a little time in the county jail. Now, of course, in our culture, we're probably not going to be thrown in jail. God, let's hope not, right? <laughs> but we may be laughed at. Last week at this time, I was... I was speaking to a, a, a group of, of high schoolers uh, in, in uh, Virginia. And I looked at them and I said, you may be laughed at. You may be ridiculed. And now, as adults, most of us are adults in this room, we can withstand that, right? But sometimes we may encounter, you know, that we don't get invited to a certain function. Now, now that begins to cramp our style a little bit, doesn't it? So we probably won't you know, be accosted or an ambush like Peter and John, but perhaps there might be some, some lifestyle things that take place 
that we shrink away from speaking up because of that. Paul writes to young believers living in the Greek city of Corinth these words. Through us, he brings the knowledge of Christ. Everywhere we go, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way of salvation. An aroma redolent with life, but listen to this. But those on the way to destruction treat us more like the stench from a rotting corpse. There's a pleasant word picture, huh? (laughs) Those that recognize and, and they say something's different about their life, sometimes they go, that's redolent with life. They relate to that, they respond to that. There's a reaction to that, but at times, For those on their way to destruction, for those who have stiff-armed God and us, we can smell like a rotting corpse to them. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) So, what I'm saying today, and I think what this passage teaches us, is that our life should um, demand a reaction. There should be a reaction. But secondly, I think it's important to see that you can confine the messengers, but you can't confine the message. Luke doesn't want us to miss. It's sweet irony. I love verses three and four because it's so sweet. While John and Peter are in jail, Luke wants to tell us that 5,000 people went ahead and responded to the message, and their wives, and their children. I mean, the church exploded that day. At the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000, but now there's 5,000. The message is loose. (laughs) You can confine the messengers, but you cannot confine this message. She was born just about an hour and a half from here in a little town of Prescott. She attended Northern Arizona University. And early on, her classmates Notice that there was something different about Kayla. They noticed that when a child was bullied on the playground, she would defend them. She would stick up for them. She would stand up for them. And then later, she became a teenager. She got, she got involved in, in civic causes. Her parents uh, took her to church faithfully. And her, her relationship with Jesus was also developing at this time. She went on a trip to the Middle East because in her words, she said, I could not allow the suffering that I saw to become normal. While there, Kayla Mueller was captured by ISIS and imprisoned for several months. She wrote a letter home just before ISIS and the people in ISIS took her life. And part of that letter read this. I remember mom always telling me that all, that all in all, in the end, the only one we really have is God. I have come to a place in my experience where in every sense of the word, I have surrendered myself to our creator because literally there is no one else. And by God and by your prayers, I have felt tenderly cradled in free fall. Isn't that beautiful? 
tenderly cradled in free fall. I have been shown in darkness light and have learned that even in prison, one can be free, and I am grateful for that. Even in prison, one can be free. And that's what we encounter with Peter and John. That, that even, in, even though they're imprisoned, they are free. And the message, of course, is loose. Now, no one wants to lose their life at 25 years old. We certainly don't want our children to lose their lives at 25 years old. But we also want our kids, don't we, to live lives that matter and lives that count. We want them to be carriers of the, mis of the message that makes a difference. I'll never forget a parent that came up to me one time and he, he said, I don't know why you keep taking all these students on mission trips. Why do you do that? Wouldn't it be easier just to raise the money and send them the money on overseas to these organizations? I said, well, it, it might be easier, but I would have a problem with that because you see, I'm trying to make your son or daughter a missionary. <laughs> he didn't like that too much. <laughs> Hopefully he just sent his money uh, on over. But not only that, in this passage, not only do we see that, that you can confine Peter and John, you can confine the messengers, but you can't confine the, mess uh, the message. We see this. I believe this is so strongly taught in this passage, that we will be given power as power is needed. Let me explain, and let me read a couple of verses to you, starting at verse 7 of chapter 4. They brought in the two disciples, so after... Um, they let him out of jail, and they brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power and in whose name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, we are, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. By what power and in whose name, the religious leaders ask, do you remember how Peter answered this question the last time he was asked about his relationship with Jesus? <laughs> I don't even know the man. In fact, Scripture tells us that he swore he didn't know the man. Never met him, never hung out with him. I don't know the man. But that's not how he answers this time, is it? Boldly, courageously, unashamedly, Peter proclaims the name of Jesus. They're different men than they were just a couple of months ago. He says, healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. You see, in their culture, the name in which you did or said something meant the very nature, the very personality, authority, and power of that person. In the Old Testament, it said that the name of God 
filled the sanctuary. The name of God, the presence of God filled the sanctuary. Jesus came in the name of God, and then he sent out his disciples in his name. When we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. That, that's more than just saying, hey, I'm wrapping up my prayer now. <laughs> We're calling upon all of the authority and the personhood of Jesus himself when we pray in the name of Jesus. And that's what Peter and John say. That's how this man was healed. And that's in whose name that we preach this good news. Now in the book of Acts, I see that there's a difference between being full of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. You remember in Acts chapter two, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Mark taught us in this powerful moment at the day of Pentecost, as the disciples were gathered in the upper room, contemplating what they were going to do next, the Holy Spirit came upon them as tongues of fire, and they began to speak in languages, and people began to hear them in their own languages. The, the first filling of the Holy Spirit happens when we surrender our lives to God. In fact, none of us can even come to that place of surrender without the help of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that draws us, that woos us, that, if you will, lures us in. I was not personally looking for an encounter with Jesus Christ when I became a Christian. He found me. <laughs> and then in that moment, as I surrendered, Scripture says that I became full of the Holy Spirit. But something else is happening here in the fourth chapter of Acts. Did you notice that it said Peter filled with the Holy Spirit? It seems like there's another work that's going on. There's a, perhaps maybe even a second work going on for Peter. Full of the Holy Spirit at his conversion, but now for a special work for this encounter, for this moment when Peter needs it the most, it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He is given power as power is needed. I've seen this as a pastor over and over again. Persons who in that moment where they would look at you and say, I don't know how I got through that moment. I don't know how I was able to survive. I don't know how I was able to overcome in that moment. But in that moment, something happened. A, a special feeling, a new feeling. There may be things in your life, there may be moments in your life that still lay out ahead of you. That you may be thinking, I don't know how I could ever get through that or overcome that unless there's a special filling. In that moment, Peter and John, in that moment, I believe are, and scripture tells us, that they are filled with the Spirit, with special power for witness or for ministry. The emphasis in the Greek indicates a special act performed, not a continuing state. In fact, they shouldn't have been surprised by this at all. 
Jesus promised this very thing, did he not? In Luke chapter 12, check this out. Jesus speaking to his disciples. And when you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before the rulers and authorities, that sounds familiar, right? That's what's happening right here in Acts 4. Jesus says, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at the time what needs to be said. Isn't that amazing that Jesus promised that? So not only is the Holy Spirit the sanctifier, making us more Christ-like, but he's also the strengthener, the empowerer, the one that in that moment when we need it the most, he comes alongside of us. It presses the question, doesn't it? That if the Holy Spirit equips us for a unique situation, a pressing problem, a difficult challenge, or a dangerous opportunity, it presses the question that what are we attempting which could not be accomplished without the help of the Holy Spirit. There are so many times in my life, I must confess, I don't need that special infilling of the Holy Spirit. I can do it in my own power, my own strength, my own skills, but there are those moments when you begin to step out, out on the edge. And I know that Pastor Mark has been challenging us during this series, you know, in the Multiply campaign. And I don't know if some of you have been praying through, you know, what can I do? You know, how, how can I help this situation? You know, what, what should I give? And maybe perhaps the, the Holy Spirit is, is empowering you for some special moment. The last couple of weeks, we've been, uh, we've been encouraging you to take cards and, and invite your friends. And for some of you, you'll need a, a special infilling to do that in your workplace or in your neighborhood because it... It takes a, a spe- it doesn't come naturally sometimes to us, does it? We need that kind of special infilling. I know on staff, we've been, we've been praying for 2,000 people. I think our, the biggest number we've had here is 1,500 and something. So it's a huge prayer. It's a bold prayer. We've been praying also, I asked Mark if I could say this. <laughs> we've been praying that, that Lord, could we build this addition to this building debt-free? Let, let's begin praying that way. Perhaps maybe the Spirit will empower several individuals to say, I can help that happen. I can help get that done. Power, as power is needed. Heard the story about some missionaries in Africa who were translating the Bible into a tribal language. And they were finding it difficult to find a word in the tribal language that would communicate this activity of the Holy Spirit that is called the paraclete, or one that comes alongside. And the missionaries noticed that each day, there were some women that would, that would take large loads. Sometimes it's water, sometimes it was grain, and when they would place it on top of their heads, and they would walk for several miles from where they picked the goods up to their village. And they noticed that all along the way, there was someone that was walking beside them that wasn't carrying anything. They thought that perhaps maybe this was a supervisor, someone that would, you know, crack the whip, uh, you know, if, if they didn't, uh, you know, carry it properly or if they stopped or slowed down. That's not what this person was for. They noticed 
that when one of the women would become too tired and fatigued and would fall and drop their load, this person that was walking beside them would pick up their load and would carry it the rest of the way on their head to their village. This person was called the porter. And the missionaries determined that is the word that we'll translate for the Holy Spirit, the one that comes alongside of us. Isn't that a beautiful word picture of this activity of the Holy Spirit? That when we're in that moment of weakness, when we fall, when we feel like we can't go on, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and gives us power as power is needed. We can pray for that. Just like Peter and John in that moment received that filling of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we're full of the Holy Spirit already, but in those moments when we need it, there's that special filling of the Holy Spirit. The one who falls down beside us and picks us up and empowers us. Power, as power is needed. I, I love that concept. And then fourthly and finally, I want you to notice that there was no mission drift. There was no mission drift. Did you notice? Mission drift is sometimes when a, a church or an individual can kind of get off track. You know, we, we get off the main point. We want you to know we say this quite often, we say it at our uh, backstage uh, class, that um, we are a Christ-centered church. There's a lot of peripheral uh, kinds of, of topics, but we're a Christ-centered church here at McDowell Mountain. We center on Christ. Each Sunday, we come to turn our hearts and our minds towards God, towards Christ. And that's something that we're, we're settled on. If someone were to come to us and say, hey, I'm not quite so sure about that, we would probably, we would argue on that point. Peter and John, they have no mission drift. There is salvation in no one else, they say. God has given us no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There was no compromise in their message. I want you to notice that as we've looked at uh, Acts chapter 1 and 2 and 3, and in, in Acts chapter 2, we see that um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And they could continue to do that as much as they wanted to. They could continue to meet in one another's homes, free to continue praising God, selling their possessions, caring for each other's needs. They were free to pursue worship and community and discipleship and service. The one thing that they couldn't pursue, according to their culture, was evangelism and sharing the good news. But that is one thing that they would not compromise on. There is salvation found in no one else. Later in the chapter, we read this. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the disciples back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But they wouldn't budge. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. All they had to do to get this group of authorities, this powerful, all these powerful people off their back 
was to agree not to speak or act in the name of Jesus publicly, but they could not agree to that. The authorities had no problem with them going deeper in their relationship with God. They had a real problem with them going wider, out into the culture, and spreading this news. Several months ago, our partners in Egypt, Ken and uh, Kelly Oldham, um, who are in Egypt, sharing good news. <laughs> they, they are free to, to meet. Uh, they are free to, to praise God. They're, they're free to disciple one another. They, they are free to care for each other's needs. But in Egypt, it's against the law to proselytize to try to convert people to Christianity. But that does not stop Ken and Kelly Oldham. We're partners with them because they continue to speak the good news of Jesus in their culture. The women are getting ready to uh, start a Bible study with this book called The Circle Maker. We're reading this as a staff. And I want to just close with a, a a paragraph from this book. Um, it has some powerful concepts for us as a church as we are in the middle of the Multiply campaign, uh, as Easter is upon us. Listen to Mark Batterson. Bold prayers honor God. God honors bold prayers. God isn't offended by your biggest dreams or boldest prayers. He is offended by anything less. If your prayers aren't impossible to you, they are insulting to God. Why? Because they don't require divine intervention. There is nothing God loves more than keeping promises, answering prayers, performing miracles, and fulfilling dreams. That is who he is. That is what he does. And the bigger circle we draw, the better because God gets more glory. The greatest moments in life are the miraculous moments when human impotence and divine omnipotence intersect. A couple of questions I want to leave you with this morning as we close this section of Acts 4. First of all, what prayers are you praying that if they were actually answered would just blow you away? Secondly, what risk do you need to take, do I need to take to spread the good news? Just like Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, they were taking a risk with their very life. They had just gotten out of prison for preaching the good news. What risk do we need to take? And then finally, what steps do you need to take to be more dependent on the Holy Spirit's power showing up at just the right time? This morning, as we uh, close with a final song, we always have crosses up here at the front. I'm not sure what prayers you're praying. I'm not sure uh, perhaps maybe what is happening in your life right now where you need maybe a, a special power to press on, to push through, to overcome. Um, you may want to just come forward and just write on a piece of paper uh, what that is. Maybe there's a bold prayer that you've been afraid to pray. Maybe it's a risky prayer that, that you don't want to quite step out and pray. This morning we invite you to do just that, to take a, to take a card and just to write out your prayer and just nail it to the cross. Just commit it to the Lord as you nail it to the cross. We always celebrate the presence of God here. Light symbolizes his presence. We have candles in the back. 
many people every Sunday um, will light a candle, signifying in their own life a need for his presence, or perhaps maybe a prayer uh, for someone else in their life. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? God, thank you so much for all that you've provided. We thank you that Peter and John in this moment in Acts chapter four did not back down. They proclaimed your name 